That song, of course, uh, written by King David, but fulfilled in the suffering of Christ. And as we sang that, we joined our voice with his as we remember how he fulfilled that on the cross for us. So now I invite you to turn in, in the bulletin to the scripture passage that we have for us this evening to consider as we meditate on the meaning and the purpose of Christ's death for us and how he redeemed us. And that is found in Galatians 3, 7 through 17. So hear now the reading of God's holy word. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather... The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask for his blessing as we meditate on it. Father, we ask that you would calm our hearts. Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate our minds so that the words before us that we just read, your holy word, would sink down into our hearts. That it would grab a hold of us and leave an impression therein. That we might grow in our love towards you and our appreciation and gratitude for your mercy and grace that you have shown us through Christ and his great sacrifice for us. Please, we ask, be with us now. Work among us. We ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine, as we open here, imagine that you wake up tomorrow morning and as you head out the door to work or whatever thing you have planned for tomorrow, there are the police waiting for you to arrest you. And they say you're under, the, under arrest for high crimes of treason and theft, and they've set your bail at $40 million. You will likely spend the rest of your life in prison. And yes, you have the right to remain silent. So what's the first and the wisest thing that you should do in a situation like this? If you find yourself in this situation, you must find yourself the best defense lawyer possible, someone who can represent you well in the court of law and clear your name from all these false and outrageous charges that they're leveling against you. I sure hope that none of you wake up to that reality tomorrow morning, but I do want you to see tonight that before God, your ultimate law enforcer and judge, you are wanted 
for outstanding crimes of high treason against your Creator, for rebelling against Him, and you've racked up a massive debt that you yourself can never pay off. And so tonight, I want to introduce to you from this text, introduce to you the very best defense lawyer that you can find, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the only one capable of representing you in God's court of law, the only one able to clear you from all of your true charges, your sins. And so we'll consider three things this evening that Jesus did in order to redeem us from the curse of the law through his death on the cross. Three reasons why he is the best representative of all. And first, we find that Jesus was legally recognized as righteous. Here in Galatians 3, the text before us, Paul explains that nobody is justified before God by the law. No one is found righteous before the law of God. What he means is that no human being is capable of fulfilling all of God's commands, all that is written in God's holy word. Nobody can keep all of God's commands without failing in the least. No one is perfect, which is what God demands. And this might seem shocking to us, right? We think of ourselves as usually morally upright, good people, especially when we compare ourselves to the people around us in the world. And that's the problem. God does not compare us to other people. Rather, he compares us to himself, his own standard of purity, his character, and his goodness. And so, as the Westminster Standards says and explains clearly, God demands from us perfect, perpetual, and personal obedience to his holy law. And nothing else, nothing less, will do. And that's why Paul says that all who rely on the works of the law are actually under a curse. So if you trust in your own moral behavior, your own obedience, your own works according to the law, the only outcome that you deserve is the punishment of God's law. That's what Paul is arguing here. This is always the outcome for each and every one of us because, first of all, we're all born in sin with a corrupt nature from the very beginning. And secondly, because daily we add and increase our debt that we have against God through our obvious and subtle sins. And we've been talking about that in our Friday night fellowship as we've considered over and over again the respectable sins, those sins that we tolerate often as Christians, but in fact are still sins before God that make us liable to his judgment. As Paul says in Romans 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. But then into the scene steps Jesus, the one and only truly righteous man who had no sin. And in fact, this is the reason why Jesus was publicly tried by the court of law, by both the Jews and also the civil judge, the Roman judge, Pontius Pilate. It proved that he was innocent. If there was any legitimacy to the many accusations that those who were bringing to Pilate against Jesus uh, brought to him that evening or that day, well, if there was any legitimacy to it, he would have gladly and quickly crucified Jesus without a care in the world. But instead, how did he respond? He said, well, what evil has he done? Pilate found him totally innocent as he evaluated their charges. And all of this 
was to show that Jesus was legally acknowledged as righteous before God and before men. He came, we see, to fulfill all righteousness for us as our representative. Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Why was Jesus born under the law? What does it mean that he was born under the law? It means that from his birth, he he was submissive to God's law in order to fulfill it as our representative, to keep all of God's commands. And so from his birth to his dying breath, Jesus was perfectly, perpetually, and personally fulfilling all of God's commands. He was the spotless Passover lamb sacrificed in our place righteous under the law of God. And he did that as our representative to, as Paul says, redeem those who are under the law. So we've seen that he was acknowledged as righteous for us, and this is why, this is the first reason why Jesus is the best representative for you. He is righteous for you. Secondly, Jesus was legally condemned in our place. Despite the fact that he was acknowledged as righteous and innocent legally, he was then condemned to suffer a cruel death by crucifixion. And this was no accident. It came to no surprise for God. This was, in fact, prophesied by Isaiah himself, saying, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was the will of God all along. The mysterious and wise plan of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that Jesus would come to this point and be crushed in our place. And this is why the climax of Paul's argument in our text is found in verse 13, where he says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Paul is showing that Jesus laid down his life willingly. He redeemed us. No one took his life from him. Others may have killed him, yes, but he intentionally went to death for us. He went to the cross for us. But what does it mean when Paul says it, the curse of the law, and that he became a curse for us? What what does that mean? Well, first he's talking about the law of Moses, which was God's law for Israel. And when we look back into the Old Testament in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, we find that God listed there for the Israelites a list of blessings for their obedience. If they obeyed, they would have reaped certain blessings and also a list of curses for their disobedience. Disobedience would result, therefore, in the curse of the law falling upon you. Not a magical kind of curse, but rather a legal punitive response. To be cursed is to be condemned and undergo the punitive consequences of disobedience to the law. And since all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, all of us have sinned, none of us is righteous, we all deserve that verdict to be condemned, to be cursed. We deserve to face the punitive consequences of God's law, namely a shameful, never-ending death, separated from God's goodness and kindness and mercy. We think of death as natural because it happens to all of us, but in fact, it is penal. The wages of sin is death. 
It is punishment. In Israel, in the life of Israel as a nation, the shameful fate of death under the law of God as being accursed was symbolically represented by a specific kind of death, hanging on a tree. So you may imagine if you're an ancient Jew traveling from one town to another, and in your journey as you approach a town there on the outskirts of the town, you find a man hanging on a tree, dead. What would you conclude as a Jew who knew the law well? Well, you would assume that that individual was accursed for his disobedience to the law of God. And that's exactly why Paul quotes here from Deuteronomy 21, 23, saying, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And we can see there the connection, right, to the cross of Christ, which was a tree. Although we deserve a shameful death for our disobedience, Jesus volunteered to die condemned and cursed in our place. And that is why God purposed that Christ would be lifted up on a Roman cross to show that Jesus took the punishment that we all deserve. God's justice, because Christ died in our place, God's justice no longer demands our death because Jesus died in our place. We can think of it in this way, that because Jesus legally took upon himself all of our sins, all our high crimes, all our debts, God redirected all of his righteous anger that he had pointed at you and at me, and he redirected it to Christ, his beloved Son, in our place as our representative. And on the cross, Jesus physically and spiritually was crushed under God's heavy wrath and anger, his justice. He became a curse for us. And that's why Jesus cried out as we sang and we read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cut off from his Father, stricken, smitten, and afflicted for us, for you, if you believe in him. The Heidelberg Catechism says, is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying in some other way? Could he have died in another way? Well, the answer is, yes, it is significant. This death convinces me that Jesus shouldered the curse which lay on me since death by crucifixion was accursed by God. We often think of Christ on the cross and we bless him for it and we praise him for it and we boast in the cross as we should, but we should never forget that Jesus hanged there publicly accursed by God for us. There on that tree he died, the just for the unjust. John Calvin said there, in short, mercy has swallowed up all misery and goodness all misfortune. And so we see that the one who was acknowledged publicly and legally as righteous was also condemned in our place. And this is how Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law and the second reason why he is the best and only representative you should seek. Thirdly, Jesus has legally conferred to us all of his benefits. He has conferred to us all of his benefits. By his death, Jesus was not only taking away the wrath of God, not only removing God's righteous anger away from us, 
but he was also securing for us legally all the blessings, all the blessings that he himself earned by his obedience in our place. Remember, the disobedience to the law of God results in a curse falling upon you, whereas obedience to the law secures blessings. And so Jesus' whole life and then his last sacrificial death on the cross was his final act of obedience to the Father. And by his obedience, he now has secured for us and confers to us all of the blessings that he himself earned for us. As Paul here mentions in verse 3 in our text, or he mentions three here in our text, three blessings we'll look at very briefly. The first blessing he confers to us is justification. Justification that God declares us legally righteous by faith in Jesus. We don't have to wait until the final judgment, till after our death, before we're the, when we're before the Father, to know what God thinks of us, to know whether or not He will accept us. We don't have to wait. By faith alone in Christ, God has already declared His verdict over you. You are righteous in Him. And there is a great comfort and security and assurance in that blessing He confers to us. Secondly, adoption. Adoption. Since you have been declared righteous before God, you have been legally adopted into God's family as his son or his daughter. And in verse 7, Paul says, it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And then he elaborates on this point later in chapter 4, saying that we have received adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And what does adoption mean, practically, personally for us? Well, it includes the security, the closeness, and that love that we now have with God our Father. All of those core blessings that a child should receive from his parents, we now receive from God our Father because we are found in Christ as adopted, as his beloved children. And because we are children, we have the third blessing that he confers on us, which is inheritance. As Paul already mentioned, if you are a child of God, then you are an heir of God. And typically, children receive an inheritance from their parents. And in chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham comes to us. Part of the, that's the inheritance, and so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And then he elaborates a bit more in Romans 4, 13, where he says the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that we would be heirs of the world. And so we can call this inheritance, in a word, the kingdom of God, which includes the down payment of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, assuring us and guaranteeing things to come, but then also the promise of resurrected life, our own resurrected bodies and resurrected existence in the new creation. That is the inheritance that Christ has legally earned and won and confers to sinners like you and like me. And so we've considered the benefits that Christ confers to us. But we must say something now as we come to a close that is vitally important. Christ only confers these benefits to those He represents. Those chosen by the Father, the elect 
of God. Jesus did not fulfill the law and stand condemned on behalf of every single individual on the planet. His death was sufficient to save all, but is efficient only for a particular people for whom he came to die. You see, Jesus does not legally represent each and every person who has ever lived. And I cannot be sure that Jesus currently represents every single person here in this room tonight. And so how do we know whom Jesus represents? How do we know? Well, Paul gives us the answer in verse 9. He says, Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. You see, Jesus only represents those who by faith have sought him out as their one and only defense before the Father. Jesus only represents those who take no confidence in their own achievements, in their own good works, their own good deeds, but instead have taken refuge in him alone as their only hope and stay. Naturally, then, the question is, for all of us, for all of you, have you appropriated Jesus and his death for you, for yourself? Is your hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? Can you say that? Children of the covenant, you who are young little ones and also you who are young adults who have yet to make profession of faith, have you made Jesus your own by faith? Have you laid hold of him to find peace and joy and assurance in him as your Savior, as your King? Do you believe in Jesus? If you have not yet, why, why wait? Why not now? As I said in the beginning, before God, we are all criminals with outstanding crimes of high treason against our Creator, and you have disobeyed Him, and you have a record of debt that's standing against you before God that you will never be able to pay off. In life, if you happen to get arrested by the police, you get exactly one phone call. And you better make that phone call wisely. So I pray that the Spirit, in a sense, has arrested your heart this evening as we've meditated on the, our guilt before God, showing you your need for forgiveness so that you would call upon Jesus as your only Savior to represent you. He is able to clear you from all your charges, all your sins, and declare you righteous and adopt you as His child, as a child of Father to give you his very own eternal inheritance. So children, young and old, don't wait. Call upon Jesus, even now, in prayer. Trust in him. Let's pray together. Well, Father God, indeed, we recognize our guilt before you and our need of representation, our need of the only one who can stand between us and you, Father, the righteous one who was condemned in our place. And not only that, not only has he taken away our guilt and our sin and the condemnation that we deserve, but he also freely gives to us and confers to us 
all of the blessings that he has won and earned for us through his obedience. What grace, what love, what mercy is found in Christ and in him alone. For those of us who have taken refuge in him, we boast in Christ and his cross. For those who have yet to lay a hold of Christ, we ask that you would work in their hearts now, O Spirit. Bring them to conviction of sin. Bring them to a point where they call out upon Jesus. That they take refuge in him. That they trust in him for their salvation, their only hope and stay. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in response to God's word and also in preparation for the Lord's Supper, let's stand and sing a song of application, number 338, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. My riches gain I count but loss, and for contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, Save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. See from His head, His hands, His feet, Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Maybe seated. One of the meanings and significances of the Lord's Supper is this is a 